You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ezra 2. Okay, I'm making a decision right now to say something or not. You pray. Okay, I'll say it. There's a time in the book of Ezra where Ezra gathered the people all together, all the people of Israel by the hundreds and even thousands. And it says they met early in the morning, probably around 6 or 7 a.m., and they read the word of God standing up until midday. And they all rejoiced. Ezra 2. <laughs> you keep praying. These now are the people of the province who came from those captive exiles King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarahiah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. The number of the Israelite men included Parash's descendants, 2,172. Shephat descendants, 372. Ara's descendants, 775. Pehath Moab's descendants, Jeshua's and Joab's descendants, 2,812. Elam's descendants, 1,254. Zatu's descendants, 945. Zakai's descendants, 760. Bani's descendants, 642. Bebai's descendants, 623. Asgad's descendants, 1,222. Adonikam's descendants, 666. Bigvi's descendants, 2,056. Aden's descendants, 200, or 454. Atra's descendants of Hezekiah, 98. Bezai's descendants, 323. Jorah's descendants, 112. Hashem's descendants, 223. Gibar's descendants, 95. Bethlehem's people, 123. Natapha's men, 56. Anathos men, 128. Asma, Asmaveth's people, 42. Kiratharim, Kephiras, and Beeroth's people, 743. Ramah's and Geba's people, 621. Mikmah's men, 122. Bethel's and Ai's men, 223. Nebo's people, 52. Magbish's people, 156. And the other Elam's people, 1,254. Haram's people, 320. Lods, Hadids, and Ono's people, 725. Jericho's people, 345. Sinea's people, 3,630. And the priests included Jedediah's descendants of the house of Jeshua, 973. Imber's descendants, 1,052. Pasher's descendants, 1,247. And Haram's descendants, 1,017. The Levites included Jeshua's and Cadmiel's descendants from Hodaviah's descendants, 74. The singers included Asaph's descendants, 128. The gatekeeper's descendants included Shalom's descendants, 
Atra's descendants, Talmon's descendants, Akub's descendants, Hattita's descendants, Shobai's descendants, in all 139. You may be seated. Verse 43, the temple servants included Zihah's descendants, Hashifah's descendants, Tabaoth's descendants, Karo's descendants, Sha'iah's descendants, Padon's descendants, Lebanon's descendants, Hagabah's descendants, Achab's descendants, Hagab's descendants, Shalmai's descendants, Hanan's descendants, Giddel's descendants, Gehar's descendants, Reiah's descendants, Reason's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, Gassa, uh, Gazim's descendants, Uzzah's descendants, Paseah's descendants, Beshai's descendants, Asna's descendants, Meunim's descendants, Nefusim descendants, Backbook's descendants, Hakufa's descendants, Harher's descendants, Basla's descendants, Mahida's descendants, Harsha's descendants, Barco's descendants, Sisera's descendants, Tama's descendants, Naziah's descendants, and Hathapha's descendants. The descendants of Solomon's servants included Sotai's descendants, Hasapharah's descendants, Peruda's descendants, Jaila's descendants, Darkon's descendants, Giddel's descendants, Shephatiah's descendants, Hattil's descendants, Pachareth, Hezabayim's descendants, and Amai's descendants. All the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants, 900 5292. The following are those who came from Tel Mila, Tel Harsha, Carib, Adan, and Emmer, but were unable to prove that their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelite. Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, 652. And from the descendants of the priests of the descendants of Hobaiah and the descendants of Hazkaz, and the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, who had bore their name. They searched for their entries in the genealogi genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and Thummim the whole combined assembly numbered 42,360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants and their 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Verse 68. After they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave freewill offerings for the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. Based on what they could give, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the people settled in their towns and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. You guys are awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've told us every book of your word is inspired. 
and placed there for a purpose. You've even said that every jot, and tittle, every little tiny grammatical mark in Hebrew was ordained by your hand. And Lord, we're studying this ancient text. And I pray that you would uh, help us wrestle through uh, why do you put lists like this in your word? Father, I need you. This church needs you. Hastings needs you. Change our hearts. Transform our lives. In your name I pray. Amen. You guys are awesome. Did I say that? <laughs> are you all wore out? You're like, what is happening? What just happened? Uh, it didn't last till, well, how, what time is it? 10.30. Um, boy, I got no smiles. Did that kill you? <laughs> just, there we go. <laughs> what was going on? Well, let's talk about what is God's word doing with lists like this in the middle of it? How does that help our lives? I have struggles. I have hopes and dreams. How does knowing that there was 42,600 and something whatevers help me? Our title today is 40,000 Captives. One Savior. And our question is, how do we return to God? So we can pull that up on the screen if we want to. 40,000 captives, one Savior. It's not ready. That's cool. Uh, if you have a piece of paper, you can just follow along. I don't know if it's even passed out. Should we pass it out? Let's take time and pass it out. Uh, Patrick, can you go grab the, the stack of papers? And Joe and Patrick can help. Will, can you help out passing out the papers? And uh, we'll just go up and down the aisles and get these, uh, get these ready to go. While they're doing that, let's talk about our question. How do we return to God? Where are you right now, guys? How are you and God doing? You ever feel like an exile? You ever feel like an outsider? You ever feel like, um, I'm not where I want to be in life. You ever have hopes and dreams that make you think, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. Maybe you make a plan, or maybe you share a plan with someone else, and they go like, well, you dreamer, who do you think you are? Why would you go for such big things in your life? You're like, but, but I, I want to go after God in my life. I want to dedicate my future to the Lord. How do you do this? How do you stay with the Lord? How do you not go into exile? How do you not get removed from the closeness? You've ever, you ever felt really close to God? You ever had an experience where you go, I don't think I'll ever be the same. And then Monday comes. And the hot water heater <laughs> blows out. <laughs> and you're like, ah, God. Why did that have to happen now? Maybe your relationships are strained. Maybe you're close to somebody and the love that you felt in days past, uh, it's not warm like it used to be. And you have good intentions you feel in your heart, but, but things come out of your mouth that hurt feelings. You're like, I wish I could take that back. You know, the children of Israel were given an amazing land. 
Amazing inheritance. The, the world that they inhabited as, as Israelites is probably very hard for us to even understand what it was like. It was like combining the emotions you feel at a Husker game mixed with maybe your most patriotic moment visiting Washington, D.C., and for this church, probably a, uh, either a teacher convention or a Harley-Davidson motorcycle rally. <laughs> All put into a blender, and you're just going like, God is good! <laughs> and then you just go back home, and God feels far, far away. And you got, God, how do I get back to that? How do I get back to that? We have four points that we want to look at right here as we think of 40,000 captives, one Savior, and how in the world do we get back? Maybe there's been a voice in your heart for a long time, and you feel like, I've never really been there yet. It worked for you too. Number one, hope in a promise. Number two, hope in a plan. Number three, hope in a people. Number four, hope in one man. And after each section, put in parentheses, hope in a promise, why Ezra? Why is this book in the Bible? Number two, why hope in a plan? Why do we have all these lists? The Bible is full of lists. Number three is hope in a people. Not just lists in general, uh, genealogies and census and map directions in the book of Numbers. Uh, why? Why has God put it? And then number three, but why this list in Ezra 2? And finally, why is there a need for a new heart? And that's the punchline. That's how the story ends. So let's keep praying as we, as we move forward there. One of my favorite Bible commentators said, never try to pe preach on Ezra chapter 2. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, hope in a promise. Why Ezra? First of all, as we look at the book of Ezra, it's really, uh, originally in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were in one scroll. It's really the continuation of one story in one period of history, about 500 years before Jesus came. And that story is broken into three parts. And one is uh, the children of Israel have been, have been taken away because of their disobedience into slavery, and they're slaves in a foreign land. If you've ever traveled and got out of the United States, and felt how vulnerable you are, how paranoid you, might, paranoid you might get if you lose your passport or your birth certificate and you won't be able to make it across the border. They've been living this way for generations as slaves in a foreign land. No rights, no privileges, no economic, no, no uh, um, governmental power or standing. And... Um, the book of the Bible, why, why, is, why is Ezra here, this story, um, it's placed right here at the end of the story of the New Testament. It's right in the middle of the New Testament, but everything shifts into like Proverbs and prophets and, and Psalms after the storyline ends in uh, First and Second Chronicles. It's right at the end of the story. If like you're watching um, your favorite like uh, Rocky movie, maybe you're binging on all the Rocky movies, and you finally get to the, to the last one, it's done. But you can go online and, and read, oh, Rocky's played by a Sylvester Stallone, and you can read details and talk to other people online about how they love Rocky. Well, that's how the Bible works, is there's a storyline, and then there's all these comments about how the story went. And the story of the Bible is this, and this is how Ezra fits into it. God started with a perfect plan for his people. 
God's heart is, is, is for your good. For all of eternity, the Holy Trinity existed in a place where there was no sin. And there was no need for his wrath. It was just pure and perfect love in a wonderful community. And he created men and women to humanity to come into this beautiful community and right off the bat, they said, we don't want you, God. We don't want your holiness, God. We don't want your goodness, God. And he said, if you don't want me, I'm not going to force myself on you. Now, I'm a Calvinist, and I believe God is sovereign, but God is also a lover. And he wants our hearts. He wants us to want him. And Adam and Eve says, we don't want you, God. And their children said, we don't want God's ways. And generation after generation, it tells us how that humanity doesn't want God. But there's something else going on in the Old Testament. God still wants us. And he says, I promise you, my plan will succeed. The beauty and the joy of the Garden of Eden is yours. You trust in him, you will have it. And he says, this is how I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to work through a certain plan, through a certain story. I'm going to give it to you. Um, I'm going to start this ball rolling through a man named Abraham. And he's going to start the ball of redemption rolling. And Abraham's going to have a son. And his son's going to have a son. And Jacob's going to have 12 sons. And they become tribes. And those tribes grow into a nation. And God says, I'm going to bring my deliverer out of my special nation. And that special nation continues to rebel against God and they go down into Egyptian captivity. He brings them out. He says, here's the promised land. And the old generation says, we don't want it. He says, then wander in the wilderness. All the years go by and he finally brings them into the land of promise. And it's inhabited with all sorts of, of pagan idolatry. So bad that they, they practice human sacrifice. And God's people joined in with them. God said, if you don't even want my will, when I set you right in the middle of it all, you're going to be taken off into captivity. And by his amazing sovereignty and his amazing um, act behind the scenes, uh, empires came and took them away into, into slavery. And that's where they are in the book of Ezra, in slavery. And God says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to bring you back. I'm not going to let you go. Where are you this morning? Do you feel like you're in slavery? you feel like you're a captive? you feel like you're an outsider? you feel like those around you don't really understand the longings and the groanings of your heart? God does, and he will not let you go. He'll keep coming back for you. And that's what we're learning, how God deals with his people. He comes and gets them back, and he stirs up the Persian pagan king to say, you know what? I'm not a Jew. I don't know anything about the Jews, but I think I'm going to use all my money to build a Jewish temple far, far away. And so he opens up the, the, the cash register and funds a building plan. And that's what's going on in the book of Ezra. And the first wave comes and they build the temple. And the second wave comes and, and they reestablish the respect for God's law. And that's what Ezra specialized in. He was a great man of the law of the book of, of God. And then Nehemiah said, and now we're going to build a wall and fill the city with people. 
And sadly, many books in the Christian bookstores think this is a perfect blueprint of how you can launch a giving campaign in the church or build your congregation or lead your company. But at the end of every single story, you're left, if you read it, you guys are willing to read it because you just sat through Ezra 2. <laughs> they built the, the, the amazing temple, and they said it's not as good as we thought it was going to be. And uh, they started studying the Bible again uh, under, under Ezra, and he comes out with this weird interpretation of the law. I'm anxious to see, Joe, how you interpret this. But he says, all you guys that have, have married foreign uh, brides, you need to divorce them. And I'm like, is that in the law? It, it, did, did, uh, uh, first of all, so Jews are never supposed to marry Gentiles. Let me get this right. We've got to keep the bloodline pure. There should be no Gentile blood in the lineage. Moses married an African. Um, Jesus has a prostitute Canaanite in his lineage. What's going on? What happened? Good leader. Ezra's a, a very good leader, but you're left at the end of the story going like, huh? This is the great return? And it gets even worse with Nehemiah, where Nehemiah builds the wall, everything's set up. It is an amazing blueprint for how to knock it out of the park with organization and delegation and how to move a movement forward. And if you read Numbers chapter 13, it says, and nobody stuck to it. And he went around to inspect, and they were breaking the Sabbath, and they were doing all sorts of things that, uh, that uh, Ezra would never want them to do, and Nehemiah gets so mad, he goes sideways as a leader. Good leader, but he goes sideways, and he says, well, at least remember me, God. They may be leaving you, but remember me, God. And he goes up to these people, and he sees them breaking the Sabbath, Read Numbers 13, it says he beat them up and pulled out their hair. You're like, so this is the amazing new covenant age where the lion will lie down with the lamb and there will be peace and joy. It's like, what is happening? That's the book of Ezra. And you're saying, okay, so that's why Ezra is in the Bible. And uh, there was this prophecy that was given in Jeremiah that says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah, as they're being taken into captivity, says, you may be going off for 70 years, but you're going to come back and there's going to be a day when I'm going to change everything down to its core. It's going to be glorious and I'm going to put a new heart and a new spirit and it is going to be wonderful in people in Ezra's day. So, so this must be it. The new day has come. I'm wrestling trying to figure out what it must have been like to be a Jew. Went to the Husker game a couple weeks ago, as I mentioned. I think, I think Husker fans and Orthodox Jews have a lot in common. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> hmm. How'd the game turn out last night? I didn't see the final score. <laughs> telling you, telling you, they're not winners. Old Testament. Um, one you one the feeling that you get as a Nebraskan surrounded by 75,000 other Nebraskans we were there um, when we were playing what was it Wisconsin 
Mich Michigan. And, uh, and I saw husbands and wives walking in where the, where the husband was wearing a Wisconsin blue and the wife was, was wearing Husker red. And I'm like, no, there's a troubled marriage. <laughs> Just the, 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 the courage it would take to sit with a blue shirt in the, in the middle of a Memorial Stadium. I feel the emotions while I'm sitting there going like, these people are like me. I'm part of a community, a big community, a force of people, and we're all gathered together for the same reason. And there is resources involved. Have you seen Scott Frost's salary package? Who cares if we win if you're Scott Frost? We're sitting there and all of a sudden five military jets come flying overhead. We're like, oh, love America. A giant flag goes up, up the, uh, the bleachers and people are, are pushing it above their heads and there it is waving. The band comes out. The jumbotron can outblast everybody. And these amazing physical specimen 20-year-olds come out and they do things none of us can do. And we pay $100 or $200 to watch them do it. wonder what the... Uh, wonder what the uh, ticket price takings are every home game. This is huge. And I'm telling you, some people worship that. Some people find their identity in that. Some people have at least mild depression when we lose. You ever been to Washington, D.C.? And you really see the Lincoln Memorial? We went there on a Promise Keepers event, and there were hundreds of thousands of men gathered together and you're thinking this is an amazing country uh, this is not just something that popped up in my lifetime uh, there's been statues representing the things that we all as a as a government and as a nation hold in common and and you feel this love and gratitude for for your country go over to arlington cemetery and you see rows and rows of white stones every single one representing a man that died for my freedom. And you come up and there is the, the uh, uh, tomb of the unknown soldier, that eternal flame, and those Marines going back and forth in perfect precision. Now I had an old SLR shutter camera and I came huffing up there right in the middle of the changing of the guard. I started taking pictures. <coughs> I didn't see the sign where you don't take pictures of that and you don't say anything. And this one Marine turned around and looked at me like two pistols right in my eyes going like, ah, it's not my camera. <laughs> the Jews felt national pride. The Jews felt communal pride. Even mix in the best Thanksgiving home emotion you had. Some of us come from very difficult families. Some of us have really good memories. You ever gone back to your home where you grew up? Maybe the weeds are growing up around the house. You can see your bedroom window and the old tree where your swing was. To be a Jew meant my community is everything. My family is everything. And you don't divide the government from the church. And you don't divide the feelings of sentimentality Every year that they would have their special events, they would all come to Jerusalem and you would see the amazing temple and you would see all the amazing um, uh, priests doing their, their worshipful things and it's all endorsed by God and God's word. 
and uh, there would be too many people to stay in the city. So they say they would light fires around the hillsides and around the mountaintop because Jerusalem was built on a mountain. And they'd be outside the walls and there would be these, these little tents with campfires and you could step back from the city and see it. You know, they didn't have electricity. And so the only lights that you could see were from the torches in the city, but all these little white tents and campfires around as everyone gathered together and we're related, we're family, we're going to church together, and we feel like we're at a Husker game together, and we feel like we're visiting Washington, D.C., and, uh, and you feel like uh, maybe they had uh, donkeys with chrome mufflers, I don't know, but there was a good feeling of getting together around stuff that everybody likes for generation after generation after generation, and memories were made. You remember last Passover when we went with Grandma and Grandpa up to Jerusalem, and we did the sacrifice, and uh, we enjoyed the very center of who I am. You ever seen a movie that's uh, set in a post-apocalyptic setting? You've seen these like post-America where, uh, where New York City's all bombed out? Imagine going to Memorial Stadium and uh, there's no people there anymore and there's cracks in the cement and uh, the doors are all off and, and there's no flags flying and, the, and the, the field is all ripped up and maybe there's trees growing where they shouldn't and there's nobody home. And you go, you remember the good old days? You can still remember the good old days right now, back in 94. <laughs> kind of feel post-apocalyptic right now, but... <laughs> There's psalms that describe the destruction of Jerusalem where the people cry out and said, how dare you come into our house and destroy our way of life. As an American, can you imagine what it would be like if we were taken over militarily and no longer had access and freedoms that we have anymore and you think, how dare you? invade my land or someone comes into the church and they and they take away the people and bring evil into the midst and you say how dare you do this and there's a psalm that says i hate what you did so much i wish you would take uh um we want i wish someone would take your babies and dash them against a rock david or the the psalmist said how dare you and they took these people away into captivity and they just longed to return. That's the story of Ezra. They had high hopes. There was a prophecy over and over. They said, the day is coming when you'll return. You'll no longer be a slave. The day is coming when you're going to have a new heart. The day is coming when I'll put my spirit within you. The day is coming when you don't even have to read the Bible. My laws will be on your mind. You'll just do things because you, you know, the other day I was, do things because you want to. You know, the other day I was trying to do, or I, I did a, um, a errand for, for karma. We had to go in back into the uh, storage and get a bunch of totes out. And uh, we had a problem with the tote that was at the very back on the bottom. And karma said, could you get that tote? I didn't smile. I didn't have a new heart. I wasn't operating according to the new covenant. And so we pulled out all these totes and put them all back. And uh, I said, okay, I did it. And we had this conversation where uh, I said, well, I did it. I must have wanted to enough. And uh, 
communicated very loving, lovingly to me, but she didn't want to. The day's coming when there won't be, I don't want to anymore. There won't be any struggle anymore. Where I just want to serve the one that you love. All right. Their hopes were high. But what, what were they really hoping in? Were they just hoping for a good Husker game? Were they just hoping for a good feeling of external national pride? What were they really hoping for? Did they have hope and a plan? Number two, why do we have so many lists in the Bible? I mean, look at Nehemiah 7.6. You want to get bad? It's tough reading through chapter 2. The entire list is repeated in Nehemiah 7. <laughs> the exact same list that we just read is repeated just a few chapters later. And I'm thinking, why God? I mean, I need help on Monday morning. I'm going to do my devotionals. How is reading 70 verses about the number of cows and pigs and chickens of some ancient civilization going to help me work with my boss? We've got to shift gears on what the Bible is. The Bible is an epic story. Be like uh, getting onto your favorite uh, movie series or favorite TV series and just watching some random five minutes in the middle of the series. Just reading the credits. You're like, well, I hate this movie. Look at that. It's produced by Spielberg. Who cares? This is all tied together into a story. And really, the story begins with this long census genealogy in Ezra 2, and the story ends in Nehemiah 7 with the same list on purpose as bookends of saying, this is who we are. Lists really change when your name is on the list. If I'm reading about Shealtiel and 70, 736 horses, and I come across, and included in the, the exiles was um, Eric and Morgan and the Bartos descendants, and then here came the Marinos. And then there was, there was Andrew and Heather. And uh, you're like, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is my list now. Why are there lists in the Bible? Because guess what? This is not a fairy tale. This is a real book about a real country. And real countries have census. Real countries have demographics. And real countries need to have identity. And when you're in a traditional country, who you are, your bloodline, your bloodline, your bloodline means everything. What family you're from means everything when you're in this culture. Who can you prove that you are according to this family? And so your identity, first of all, it shows that you're a real country. Secondly, it shows who you are. It's your identity. And these lists also are kind of like uh, your mission statement and your vision statement of any organization. It shows this is who we are and this is what we are about. Not only does it provide our identity, but it guides us moving forward. It's a real country to establish their identity, to prove their bloodline. It's their founding documentations. You know how we put like the, the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution on our walls? To remind us this is who we are you know the church has its founding documents to lead us and guide us to craft us and who we are just not everything goes here because we're a real church we're a real group and so were the jews and god created them with purpose they had a great plan and it seemed great but was it 
Some of us have crests. You can trace your family back to European crests where you can see uh, that, hey, I was related to some king back in the 1200s. That's what, these, that's what these lists are all about. That's what the genealogy is about. This is who my family stands for. This is who my family is. Number three, hope in a people. So why this list? So the Bible is, has all these lists and all these genealogies because it's a real story and establishes their identity. But why this list right here in Ezra? What's going on in this list? Did you notice groups of people as we were reading? Thousands of priests. It wasn't just a ragtag group. It wasn't just a mob. These people that had been given God's government, God's worship order, still had it after 70 years. And when they were called to come back, they grouped up according to order and they came like it, it, some of you in the military and you're moving from one place in the desert to another place in the de desert. Everyone just doesn't hop on a motorcycle and a jeep and start heading for the destination. You get organized. God organized his people because he wanted the best for them. And thousands of priests gathered together and were listed out. And thousands of Levites. What are the priests? They're the teachers and the leaders. Who are the Levites? They're the servants. They're like deacons. And it says, and here's just men, just heads of households. So we had priests, we had Levites, and we had men. And then it broke it down into two types of men, those that could prove their bloodline and those that couldn't. And those that couldn't got punished, didn't have access the way the ones that could. This list has its own structure. This list, can you imagine uh, if you're someone back at Jerusalem, not everybody was taken away and some returned sooner than this group, but can you imagine being in this bombed out post-apocalyptic city and all of a sudden this big movement of 42,000 people with money and with resources and with organization comes from the desert and starts coming in and said, we're gonna take back over again. The good days are started again. We have high hopes. Prophecy fulfilled. Here's our plan. Here's our organization. Here's our money. Let's get to work. And finally, we go to number four, hope in one man. And why do we need a new heart? Because the sad reality is all the excitement failed. The best plan failed. It didn't usher in the new age. All it did is it moved the story forward. It was like season three, episode four. When is this going to end? Was it good? Ezra and Nehemiah, great leaders. Zerubbabel, a great, very good leader. But it wasn't the sweet fulfillment of the prophecy like everybody thought it was. The temple wasn't the way it used to be. The people didn't obey the, the Bible the way they should have. The leaders went sideways. That's the story out of Ezra. What in the world does that have to do with us? Don't put your hope in big movements. Don't put your hope in lots of teachers. Don't put your hope in education. Don't put your hope in social reform and service and turning the neighborhood around. The whole world says if we just 
get the right information, if we just get enough people, if we get just enough money, if everyone gets excited and is ready to get to work, then we're going to change our world. Everybody wants to change the world. No one's happy with the way the world is. Everyone knows it's twisted and we're sick of it. Everybody has their plan and everybody says, you know what? What we need are good teachers like priests. What we need are good servants like Levites. What we need is enough money and we're going to change the world. And they have the very God-given plan, people, and prophecy, and promise, and it didn't work. That's the story of the Old Testament. The best human efforts don't work. And for 400 years, no more prophecy, no more fresh word from the Lord, silence. When will my deliverer come? Do you feel that? Can we shift from the Bible now to your experience? Say, Lord, when will you deliver me from my exile? When will you change my heart? When will society change? When will my family change? When will things change in my life? And he says, don't put your hope in a people. Christians, if you're looking for a perfect church, you're never going to find it. Christians, if you're looking for a perfect preacher, you're never going to find it. If you're waiting for a perfect ser sermon, this ain't it. Pretty good, though. I love you, Joe. What do we put our hope in? Thousands of priests or one priest? What do we put our hope in? Thousands of Levite servants or one servant? What do we put our hope in? Thousands of men or one man? There was one man that finally came. And the Hebrews says that this was an everlasting prophet. Guys, guess what? You don't need a priesthood. You don't need a religious movement. You don't need a perfect church. You need one priest that says, I will intercede for your behalf and I will pray for you to God's holy throne forever and ever and ever because I'm a priest that doesn't die. Every preacher dies. The old system of the Jews went away. Every church rises and falls. But there's one priest that intercedes for your heart forever and ever and ever. When we see Jesus Christ, we see God in human form doing what? Kneeling and washing his servants' feet. He's the ultimate Levite. He's the ultimate service. He's the ultimate deacon. You like things that are hands-on. Nebraskans like things that are hands-on. We like to be hard workers. Well, guess what? Our strength fails and our servant-heartedness ends and we get tired of helping other people because they don't respond the way we wanted them to. Well, guess what? There's a Levite that will never stop washing your feet. God comes into the room and he looks into your eyes and you're thinking, ah, I must bow to you. And he bows to you and he washes and cleanses your most filthy parts. He looks right into you. Everybody want to take your socks and shoes off and stick them in each other's face right now? God says, I will get down here and I will scrub between the toes because I'm a servant forever. You don't need thousands of Levites coming back to save you. You need one Levite. You know, God's favorite, Jesus' favorite title for himself was, I'm just the son of man. I'm the son of man. 
We just read a list where it talked about thousands and thousands of men into two categories. There were those that could prove their family lineage and those that couldn't. And back then that meant a lot. There's another genealogy in Matthew 1 that talks about Jesus' lineage. And right in the middle of that list is a prostitute. Was Jesus qualified to be the Christ? Oh, yes, he was. According to Old Testament law, he was, he was qualified according to his mother's lineage and according to his father's lineage. He was totally qualified, but he had mixed blood. He had Gentiles in his family. He even had, oh no, women in his genealogy. And what kind of woman was it? A non-Jewish prostitute. That's your God. He embraces all. He came from the same, uh, he's fully human. You look into your family tree and you go like, oh my goodness, if, if, if I just want my life to be erased from this family tree. I, I don't want things to be documented. I don't follow this amazing church, pure lineage. And maybe others that grew up in the church and you say, you know what? I've never really um, done drugs. I've never really um, been thrown in jail. Um, Okay, great. You're a church person. You're an older brother. Guess what you deal with? Joe said it last week. Pride. Ah, ah I'm so thankful that I haven't been thrown in jail and used crack. Oh, I'm better than those that have. And those over here going like, well, I don't deserve to be in the church. Both the documented and the undocumented come together and they come in force over the deserts, over the dry places, coming back to the city of promise. And guess where the city of promise is now? It tells us right here. He has sent me to heal the broken, whated, hearted. Jeremiah said centuries ago, I'm going to give you a new heart. And Jesus came and says, I'm coming all about the heart. You broken hearted today? Your dreams for the future tug at your heart? Your past break your heart? Well, there's one Levite, there's one priest, there's one man who has both a documentation and, and a rough past that says, worship this man, full, prophecy fulfilled. Hope in one man. Why do we need a new heart? Because everybody's broken hearted. You on the list? Let's get boring to us as we read them. I've never studied Ezra 2 until you have to preach on it. Joe said, uh, listen to, or to read all of, all of Ezra each week while we're going through the book of Ezra. So I, I started listening to I love listening to audiobooks. And so I started uh, reading, listening to Ezra. And like chapter 2 is like, seriously, when is this going to get over? Then I fell asleep before the book got over. Why do we need a new heart? Because without a new heart, promises fall empty. And prophecies never get fulfilled. Without a new heart, the best plans fail. Why do we need a new heart? Because guess what? You can't trust people. Why do we need a new heart? Because my deliverer is coming. 
and he has started it. You feel like, well, when is this going to happen? It has happened. It happened 2,000 years ago. It didn't all happen with one clap and one snap and we're all glorified. That's coming. But guess what? The new kingdom age has begun. And when he came, he, he, he healed the sick and he, he fed the hungry and he issued in the power of the Holy Spirit and the spirit descended upon the people and they were given new hearts and the church exploded upon world history. And little bands of people like this is the ushering in of the new age. The people have returned. And how do, you get it, how do you get to be part of this? You have to wait for 70 years? No. You can have it today. How do you get a new heart? You ask for it. You long for it. You say, I admit it. My heart is the problem. I want a new heart as you repent. And you go, I want the son of man's heart. I want a new heart. Welcome to the kingdom. Welcome to the new day. Welcome to the new age. Don't ever uh, equate this exile stuff for becoming uh, only uh, going from being a non-Christian to becoming a Christian. That's only part of it. Christians need to be delivered from bondage too, don't we? How in the world do we get uh, delivered from bondage? To become a Christian, you have to admit that you're a sinner, turn from your sin, and worship Jesus. What do we do once we're Christians? Admit that you're a sinner, turn from sin, and worship Jesus. Where are you right now in bondage? I got a little part of my heart right now that's mad against God. Because my plan, my five-year plan is not, not happening the way it was supposed to. I don't like to talk about that. I don't like to confess that. Shared it with the, the men on Wednesday. And uh, I felt a little bit of, of relief from the exile. I felt a little bit of freedom from the bondage. Are you on the list? You know, there's still lists in the Bible. Jesus has a book called the Book of Life. There's a movie called Schindler's List. Steven Spielberg wrote the movie Schindler's List and told the story of how the Jews in the Holocaust were being killed by the, the German Nazis. And Oscar Schindler was an industrialist, a factory owner and worker, and he came into... Uh, into areas of Poland and Germany and uh, started taking his ability to earn money and to make contracts with the government and uh, made a deal with some of the Nazi leaders that uh, please don't take these men off to the death camps. I need them as workers so that they can uh, advance the war effort. And so he lied and he finagled and figured out a way how he could buy people and they started making a list of all the people that Oskar Schindler used his money to buy and put on the list. And everybody that was on the list didn't have to go to the death camps. There's over a thousand people that Oscar Schindler is credited for saving because uh, the factory money that the Jewish people earned uh, paid, their selves, paid themselves off so that they weren't taken to the death camps. They were on the list. Do you think if Oscar Schindler was to stand up and had a long 1,000 name list and he started reading it that those Jewish people fell asleep while they were reading the list guys are you on the list how do you get on the list you say Lord I'm tired of my old heart I'm tired of old plans I'm tired of putting my trust into people and movements 
I'm turning away from the old way. And I'm going to put my trust in you, Lord. Amazing thing about God's sovereignty is in some way, he looks down at the book and he says, you, always, you were always on the list anyway. Behold our God. Well, that was our study. I, I, I hope that came across, uh, you know, palatable enough. Um, don't ever preach on Ephesians or Ezra 2. Um, I, just, I, just, I just say this again. I've been guilty of putting my, my trust into church movements and looking for the perfect church. Stop doing that, Donnie. I've been putting my hope and trying to think if we could just get enough people to serve the neighborhood, we could turn this city around. Don't do that. I've just been thinking, you know, if we just had a, a, the great, what's going to happen when the current generation of great teachers and preachers die? Then what are we going to do without the great teachers? Don't worry about it. Perfect systems. Perfect bloodline. I'll leave you with this. Church, you don't need a bloodline. You need blood. You don't need a priesthood. You need an everlasting priest. You don't need some amazing church movement. You need a humble servant that gets on his knees and though he's God and he knows what the atoms on Pluto are doing washes between your toes and says, I love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I admit that uh, some parts of it are very tedious. But you've created a beautiful story. And you're telling it the way you want to. And I pray that uh, as we think about the failures of those that uh, followed the perfect system. You gave the perfect system to, to the Israelites. And there was one problem, people. It's the same way today, Lord. You gave a beautiful structure for the church. And the problem is the preachers. The problem is the leaders. The problem is the people. Thank you, Jesus or stepping in as the son of man. You're not just a man. You're the man. You're the perfect human. And how you've taught the world as a priest and how you've served the world as a Levite. And you took on scandal as you rubbed shoulders with the untouchables. And you provide a picture for us, for all history, as you were stripped and whipped and nailed to a cross. And I just think about how our identity in the Old Testament says you've got to have the right bloodline. But now we can sing about there were guilty nails that pierced a holy vein. Jesus bore the cost. There was blood with holy pain dripping from the cross. 
Thank you for enduring holy pain for us. Thank you for shedding your blood. So the only bloodline we ever have to worry about is do I have a relationship with you? So Lord, if there's any of us right now that are stuck in a pattern or habit or addiction to sin, um, maybe not wait. If there's anyone here that has never seen the beauty and the joys of the holy city, the joys of the one man that everything points to, may today be the day where we search through our hearts We stop fighting and stop trusting in the things of the world, things we see in the media, things that we hear from unbelievers, things that we uh, hear from our own crazy, twisted heart. And may we return following our leader, leaving Babylon, crossing the desert, and coming home. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.